0: Welcome back to Team Everyone, Vitash is here again. You know, in the past, Kyle and I, we used to talk about what is more interesting, space or the ocean. We would often disagree, and I have always been a fan of space, and I think it's so mysterious, but I, I understand why the ocean is so intriguing. I mean there's so much to explore but there's so much going on right now in terms of space discovery we've got the james webb telescope we have the recent artemis mission there's just so much happening and so i'm really glad and really fortunate to have our next guest jesse Rogerson, who's joining us as assistant professor at the university at york university in toronto and jesse welcome to Two really happy to have you here and uh, thanks for making time
1: yeah, I'm happy to be here. I, I I can always I will always show up for an argument over whether space or oceans are cooler. So
0: well, well, I, yeah, that's. Uh, I, I'm looking forward to hearing all your insights on that. Um, I was uh, before this. I was checking out your Instagram page, and you know, you're you're on the media, and you know, talking about space and such, and and I saw a cute little photo of your of your is it your daughter? I guess that was kind of looking at the TV and and uh just fascinated that dad is on tv is that still kind of a uh an interesting experience just to be on tv or like what you know
1: yeah well when i so when i do the media stuff so this is it can be anything from i've done like like blog like like i've been quoted in like articles or been on the on the radio or been on tv itself once in a while um i really i really savor those opportunities because it's a chance to connect with a wider audience Mm -hmm and engage with science and just, you know, hey, remember, space is there and there's cool things happening. Yeah. Uh, but then as you pointed out that it, I, it's I, after Charlie comes into the world, our daughter, mm-hmm. she and that my my wife took that photo yeah. of me on TV and her like looking up, I was like, holy crap, this is a whole other dimension yeah. now because it's not, it's no longer just a wider audience. I'm like, I was like, I also, when I saw that, I was like, oh, no, I'm also speaking directly to her too. Mm-hmm. And and it, it sort of renews the, the interest I have in engaging people with science and how important science mm. is, but that it's it's also such a personal thing. It's such a that that photo is yeah. It definitely made me reorient how I communicate or why I'm communicating science.
0: Yeah, yeah it was really really neat to see that. Um, so you're you're fairly young dad. Um, how old is how old yeah is Charlie?
1: I think she's 16 months now. In
0: a couple of days, okay. six
1: 16 months I think is right. Yeah. So she she's full-on she's like walking and she's blabbing around like crazy and she's you know for parents is you know as you Mm -hmm. probably know like it changes so fast so like you you feel like you got the hang of it and and uh, then like the next week she's like a totally different person which is great and challenging (laughs) uh so it's been yeah it's been quite a ride that's for sure
0: how do you how does she keep busy like is there do you allow things like screen time at this age or is that something
1: good, good yeah so i don't know what screen time means because okay. does that mean that she's the one actually holding the phone well i think it's that or, or does it mean the like TV? the tv's I think on either
0: i think either of those screens I, so that yeah. yeah
1: the tv is on all the time okay. <laughs> um so yeah maybe we have it on too much i don't know uh but she she definitely enjoys her disney movies okay. even though she's only 16 months she she has like favorites already okay um, that she'll want to watch over and over again. And we, you know, we try not to do it all the yeah. time, but it it, it is on, yeah. it's frequently, I, we haven't really, I've, I've read stories and studies about this and there's, there's ideas that, you know, they you should limit it mm-hmm. as much as possible. And maybe we should be, we should be doing that. What do you do? We, what's, your, well, what's your rule we, at home?
0: We did uh, have a bit of screen time. I'm trying to think at 16 months. I think there was a little bit of like a little bit of Cocoa Melon and a little bit of the Wiggles maybe, yeah. Um, But it would be very limited, like maybe 20 minutes, and then it kind of started to expand. And now she gets about... She's four and a half, and uh, turning five soon, and she gets about an hour. And, I mean... And then special occasions, she'll get to watch her movies and such. And so that's kind of how we do it. Um, But...
1: I find that Charlie isn't really... uh, After... Even if you put it on for her, after about 20 minutes, she's bored and wants to go play and do something else, right? So she... You can't sit her down and have her just sit there and watch the TV. Yeah. She's not going to do that. She'll do it for like ten mm-hmm. minutes, and then she's off, like grabbing blocks. She's a big fan of blocks, and we have these little plastic balls that she loves. Um, and she's always ru- she runs around the like, kitchen island, just holding holding the two, and she's just running around and she'll throw them and stuff. Yeah. Uh, so, and she's very, very, very much enjoys looking out the window when she hears trucks and loud cars. Okay. She's always like pointing at the window, like so. The the screen, like if she was sitting. At the screen, watching the TV for an hour and a half, then I would be worried. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but she doesn't seem to be too interested.
0: Yeah. Do you find yourself as a as a new dad? Like I still feel like I'm doing this, but like I reflect on my own childhood as I'm as I'm parenting. Do you? Does that come into play for you at all?
1: Um, it definitely does. Um, so we have one. My parents had four, okay. and I can't believe what I what blows my mind is I can't believe how much one on one time I got as a child of in a house of four children. Mm. Like, I, I spent, like, I felt, I felt seen all the yeah. time. And I didn't realize that at the time. But now having the one child, I'm like, holy crap, my parents were able to actually give us attention in a, in that whatever chaos that must have been. Uh, they were, they did it really well. And we're, you know, we're thinking about, you know, what happens if you have another one? And how do you divide sure. your time between yeah. two? Yeah. And because giving we give Charlie all of our attention, mm-hmm. so how do you? Do, yeah, that's sort of where we're thinking right now, um, and that's definitely a reflection I've had is is time with the child.
0: That's amazing that like yeah, your your parents uh, four kids and the amount of presence that you're saying that they showed because. I, they I, mean, did. I don't know what what sort of era, that, like what decade that was, but I just I feel like back in the day, like it wasn't as a, like it wasn't known to be a major priority to be present with your kids. Like now, there's so much more research and and so much encouragement to to have and what that quality time means and how that affects future development. And we know these things a lot more. But for them to you know to have that sense to like, hey, we got to make sure that each kid has time. So.
1: And I can that exactly that presence. You learn so much from them, like in my job, like I find myself doing like organizational things that my dad taught me how to do when I was in like Mm -hmm. high school. And, and I'm like, ah, this is why I'm doing it because my dad told me to do it this way. Mm -hmm. And now I'm like still doing it that way. And for better or for worse, I'm sure there's, there's other traits I have that maybe I wish I didn't have (laughs) that come from my parents, but the presence, the presence of them being there, like I learned a lot from them and, and I want, I want to do the same, right. I want to, I, I want to show Charlie everything and, and teach her as many things as I can, yeah, right? Yeah.
0: What, what's the challenge that you're experiencing? I mean, imagine your, your day job is probably incredibly, incredibly busy and having yeah. a young kid. I mean, every parent, probably parents that parents go through this, but what does the challenge look like for you? And just having to be present and trying to maintain a yeah. schedule and... Uh, What does that look like for you right now?
1: Presence presence is difficult. Um, So as a professor, I teach teach a variety of courses, and they're not all, like, it's not a nine-to-five job. Mm. Like, some of my courses are, like, I teach some days till, like, 9 p.m. Mm. Um, Next semester, I'll be teaching frequently till 7 p.m. Mm. And so, like, there, like, I'm already missing things like bedtime. And bedtime is, at this age, really great because it's so precious. You get to read books. I read space books (laughs) and, you know, she points out pictures and we like, she blabbers on and then I get to put her down. It's really intimate and nice. Right. Uh, and I'm going to miss that a little bit of it next semester. I'll get some days, Mm -hmm. but not as many. And then, but even then, um, like even if I don't get that, I'm still worried about how much time I have during the day. Mm -hmm. So the job, the job is busy and trying to balance, uh, the, like actually giving quality time mm. to a child is difficult. Yeah. I'm so lucky to have such an amazing wife, mm. uh, Alex. She works. She works so hard, and she's so strong, and she is always thinking about what's the next steps for Charlie. And I try my best, but she's way, way better than me at it. And so there's so much good connection happening parentally. Um, but I am. I'm always. I'm always trying to be as good as my wife. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> i don't know if you are experiencing this but uh something i, I experienced probably um over the age of three was uh, my daughter didn't want anything to do with me that was really, really no hard. way yeah that was really hard because i i pride oh, no. myself on being present and, and being there as much as possible she wanted anything to do with me she would just always want mom to put her back and i'm like what changed like what did i do <laughs> and it was very hard and but it was Good to talk to other dads because there are other dads that experience the same thing. And I don't know if it's a, oh, no. especially a father daughter relationships. I don't know. I think there's a certain specialness to that one. And, and sure. so, like, I don't know. I find like I'm trying extra hard to kind of relate and, and be that kind of girl dad. And, and so to have her kind of push me away it was really hard. So I don't know if you're experiencing that, but maybe that might come. So I just kind of heads up on that one a little bit.
1: You know, so this is, this is interesting. Um, so did it come back is my no, first question she's did... good now
0: she loves dad and it's all it's a lot yeah. of like i want to be with dad which is amazing uh, yeah. and i also found out that uh from some research in the states that uh sometimes why that happens is because they feel so secure in the relationship with their dad that they don't feel like they they can push them away without knowing that like with knowing that dad is going to come back like they don't have that insecurity issue so when i read that i was like okay that makes me feel better it still hurts but makes me feel better but <laughs>
1: You know, I, so this is one of the, the research that I was reading is I really want, um, given the, you know, given the the culture that we have in Canada, around the world, mm. um, I want her to be strong and confident to be able to say no and express her feelings without fear of reprimand, right? Mm. So, and especially towards a man mm. to be able to say no and, and then have that be valued, mm. right? So I... <laughs> It's almost like if she if she does do that to me and pushes me away, I'm going to be like, "Yes, good job," but then I'll be like, "Oh, yeah. no." Like, wait, that that means I don't get yeah. it. But but maybe maybe it's a sign of of strength of of um, you know, strong-headedness, which is really good, ability to yeah. express the word no and and have that be valued at home. Yeah. So they they recognize that. So I'm 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 conscious I'm I'm co- constantly sort of worried about that mm. where I want her to be, to feel strong. Right. That's what I want,
0: right. right? Yeah, that's that's, that's it. That never went ran, ran from my mind. It just it hurt right to the heart. So I never really even <laughs> thought about like, oh yeah, she's exercising. It's still gonna hurt the me. The power of her no, uh, but uh, yeah, I think that's that's an interesting way of thinking about it. Um, the space. You ever see that show?
1: Um, Kids ruin everything.
0: No. Oh yeah yeah yeah. There's Go a ahead. it.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a funny little yeah. sitcom. And there was a great op- great moment in that show that was just exactly what you just said. It was like, I prefer mom to put yeah. me to bed.
0: <laughs> and it's like, ugh. Yeah. Yeah. What did I do wrong? Um, yeah. The space books that you read here, any favorite kids' space book that you
1: recommend for you? Uh, let's see, what do we read? So we have, um, we have the cat in the hat one. Uh, There's no place like space. Okay. So you know what's great? When she was born, um, you know, we're newbies, parents. We didn't know what yeah. we were doing. And we found that, we actually found that when she was like, three four months old she couldn't lift her head whatever whatever mom- whatever it was we would read that book and she would kind of like just watch it mm-hmm. and maybe it would have happened with any book but i wanted to read the space books and i i got to the point where i memorized the book because i read it <laughs> like i could read it without looking yeah. at it and i just show her the pictures so we read we still read that one a lot mm-hmm. although i've forgotten it all the words now um there's oh what's the other one oh i forget oh so one that we read frequently is not a space book; is a Canada book, okay. um, and so that's uh, more geographical. It it's good night, good night, Canada, mm-hmm. and that's a geographical okay. one. So I want her to learn. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, there was another space book. I forget. I'll think yeah, about it. Good. There's another one that we do read. Oh yeah, it was there was, um there's we have a few there's a there's a, like a solar system book. Um, I don't remember who wrote it, uh, but it's got really abstract pictures mm-hmm. of the planets mm-hmm. and the sky so it's got kind of like almost like a picasso we feel okay. kind of like ge- geometrically kind of messed up um in, and it has like a comet going through the sky and, and and the book is really nicely done where it's it speaks to the kids saying things like what do you see in the sky and there's all this mm-hmm. stuff in the sky and she can point at things and uh so there's that one and then oh yeah and then there's this uh i think my aunt got it for me it is astrophysics for babies and I, I read that to her once in a while and it, and it, and it's like, it's a, it's like a crash course in astronomy right. on like, on how stars make elements and how the elements are part of the human. Yeah. And it, it's like stuff that I teach in my, in my classes at York yeah. in like five pages with only a sentence per page is a really fun one, but it's really, it's, it got lots of nice colors in it. Yeah. So I think she it engages with her really nicely. Okay, I was going to
0: say, is that the closure? Is that the book you, you do at the end? So she just goes to bed? like. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, it's time to learn astrophysics. Yes. Time for sleeping. Yes. yes. Like all my students in my lectures. Yeah. Yes. <laughs>
0: yeah. um, your story in terms of, uh, you know, how you kind of got into astronomy. Like, is that astronomy. sort of an early age or um, where did that fascination come from?
1: Yeah, I came to it late. Um, I would say like, you know, looking back on it, I remember I was in like Boy Scouts, I think, or Beavers. I guess that's the same thing, like Scouts Canada um, when I was really young. And I remember there was one night where someone brought a telescope and we looked at Mars. Mm. That's like one of the only memories I have from from Scouts. But honestly, it, it wasn't like a career driver. I thought, oh, space is cool. I remember in high school, um, I really liked physics class. Mm. Uh, physics, physics was so grounding to me because you could there was very few scientific principles and you could use them to explain so many scenarios yeah. like like you could you could there's an equation that you could get and if i hell if i hold a ball one meter above the surface of the earth i can tell you exactly how fast it will mm-hmm. be going when it hits the mm-hmm. ground and like that was like i don't know there's it felt powerful to me that
0: you could get with physics maybe
1: i really liked yeah. it yeah the certainty yeah. um i really liked physics i really liked it and i also really liked like uh, computer science, mm. which at the time, so this was in um, the the late 90s, yeah. the computer science class, we were learning Java. Mm. And even before that, we were learning Turing. Mm. I don't know if you remember that language.
0: Turing,
1: no. uh, great language. It was really fun. Um, so I got really into like, the, again, the certainty and the problem solving yeah. of computer science. In high school, they'd be like, okay, write a program that acts like a calculator. And then you, I could be, you know, you're, you're sitting down you write code you test it you play with it and it's problem solving and physics is the same thing physics is just here's a problem use your tools you've learned and solve the problem so those were like my 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 subjects astronomy was sort of folded into physics in high school in like an almost an afterthought kind of like a a last unit that sometimes didn't get covered in grade 12 they did do special relativity though which was really cool But all of this, like it was, I never, I never saw it as a career. It was just space is cool, yeah. and and I went to university as a computer science major. I went to McMaster yeah. because I thought that was oh, maybe it'd make me money. I don't know. Sure. I get a job. Computers are yeah. around, right? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, so I went there, and when I was in first year university at McMaster, um, like I hated it. I hated computer science. Hated it. it. Did it? It did not like it. It. I don't know what it was. I I loved coding. Mm-hmm. But whatever the courses were that I was taking, I didn't really, I maybe, I had a different view of what computer science was. Okay. It was very theoretical. It was very mathematical. And so I, I, I kind of didn't like it and I, and I couldn't see myself continuing it, which was kind of scary. Um,
0: when did you realize that? Like in the middle of your degree or? in
1: Well, actually in like the first two months. Okay. <laughs> so, which is good. Yeah. There's, it was an easier pivot. And, and then, uh. So in the at, but when the first semester ended, I was like, I need, you know, I'm I'm 18 years old. I need to figure this out. Mm. I don't want to do computer science. And I had taken as an elective at Mac astronomy, mm. introduction to astronomy, because you need to take electives. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I like space. That's cool. Yeah. And and I so second semester starts. I'm taking astronomy, and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is all the stuff from physics that I liked, but only astronomy. Yeah. And like you're learning about gravity and you're learning about motion and you get to learn about the planets. And it was being taught by this professor, Ralph Pudritz at Mac, who's a fantastic lecturer, very engaging, um, very good with his students. And I fell in love with it. And and then but I was still in this world of like, I don't know what I'm going to be Mm -hmm. doing. And I so I started going to all the open houses of the faculty of science because I knew I knew I was a science brain. So I went to like the geology department and I like geology. That's cool. Rocks are cool. And I went to environmental science, which is slightly different. And I went to, um, uh, I didn't go to chemistry cause I did not like chemistry. And then I went to the physics open house and the, there was this, uh, uh, the guy there, I think it was Ken Sills, um, a, a great, great, uh, professor at York. And he was like, oh yeah, physics is great. You can learn about space. You can be an astronomer. Mm-hmm. You can do this. It's going to be fun. It's a lot of physics and a lot of math. And and I was like, OK, I, I like physics. I'm not great mm-hmm. at math. And then I just dove in <laughs> and I and I dove in and I was like, well, I'll give it a shot. And in my first year, I had to take a couple of astronomy classes as part of my major. Sure. So this is second year yeah. now. And and that's where it really became clear. It's like, holy crap, like I can I can spend the next three years just learning about space. Yeah. And so I was all in at that point. And so, I, as you can see, I didn't come to astronomy until I was like maybe eighteen Ooh, nineteen right? years yeah. old. I never owned a telescope yeah. i never I never went to space camp i never I never did anything mm. like that, but it was trying to figure out what it I really fell back on what it was obvious interests, which was physics yeah. and the cool thing is is once I got to grad school, um I realized how much programming is required in astrophysics. Oh. So I had all these like fundamental skills. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a lot of programming chops, mm-hmm. but but I, I understood what programming was and and pseudo pseudo languages and and problem solving. So by the time I got to grad school, I had a good foundation of programming to build on.
0: Was was grad? So that's was, uh,
1: yeah. At the end of my at the end of my four years, I I was like, well, I'm not done learning about this. Yeah. I really really like learning about a, about space. In fact, now I want to start. Doing the research mm. that I'm reading about in these textbooks, and so that's I went to grad school, and here I am. Well, that was my next
0: question: Is sometimes like you people just fall into grad school? Is it just a bit of an extension of your bachelor's? Like, yeah, what was that grad school was purposeful for you? Would you say?
1: Yes, it was purposeful. I did. I wasn't done learning. Okay. I knew I wasn't done learning about space, yeah. and the only way to continue was was grad school because otherwise you have to go and get a job somewhere. Right. And then you're only learning about it on the side, which people, which you can do. Uh, but I wanted it to be my whole life at that time. Yeah. Um, so grad school was the way, and I found a really great professor at York, uh, Dr. Uh, Patrick Hall, he's yeah. a quasar expert and he's such a fantastic educator and an and, and even better researcher. Yeah. And he had some really cool projects. And after speaking to him, I was like, yeah, like, I want to do what you're doing. Mm -hmm. So it was it was purposeful. It was also I didn't know what to do next. (laughs) Um, To be totally honest, uh, I think a lot of grad grad students do that where you're you get to the end of four years and it's hard to know where to go next. And I knew I wasn't done learning about space. I didn't know what kind of jobs I could get with a four year physics Mm -hmm. degree. So, yeah, so a grad school seemed like a great option and I could just, it was like, oh, I can see what I can do with, the decision was, okay, I can spend two years doing a master's and that can help me decide what an astrophysics career looks Mm -hmm. like, which it did very, very well. And, um, the, which we could, yeah, I can get into that. That's, that's the next step of the story. Right. So, well, what I was gonna say
0: is like, what is, what does an astrophysics career look like? Like, is it, mostly on the research side or what are those different options
1: oh man it depends on who you talk to okay. uh but they're all over the place mm-hmm. uh, and i would say an astrophysics career an astrophysics education mm-hmm. is a very versatile education interesting so you're you i did my master's and you're you're learning hardcore theoretical physics, hardcore, uh, observational physics mm-hmm. and astronomy, it, all, all astrophysics is, is just physics and space. Right. Right? right. And you learn all these, like really, you learn how to problem solve with your brain. You know, how to look at a problem and dissect it to what you need mm-hmm. to do. You learn a lot of coding. You learn how to use big data sets. You learn how to use, to look at data and uncover different relationships. Mm-hmm. So you could be given data sets and be like, Okay, we're trying, we have this data set and we're trying to answer this question. And so you like, you start playing with the data and you start, oh, if I graph this and this, or if I change this variable to this variable through this calculation, and then, you know, you're working through this like problem solving to massage your data to answer a question. Mm -hmm. And those are like very versatile and useful uh, abilities. If you look at anybody in the data science world, which is like a whole new Uh, that's a whole new field now in the last 20 years it's exploded. And I have good friends from grad school who finished their astrophysics grad work and went straight to data science Mm. and are doing great things with their work. Mm. Um, so that's like one direction you can go. You can, after you can become a hardcore astrophysicist and be a researcher. Mm. So that's where you're like, you're trying to get hired at a university, you're going to be a, a researching professor. You're going to have grad students. Mm-hmm. You're going to write mm-hmm. telescope proposals, um, or any kind of or grant proposals, and build a research lab. And you can do that too. And then the route that I went, which is much more in keeping with myself, is is an education and public outreach okay. route. Yeah. Uh, there's only so many. There's only so much room in the world for researchers. There's mm-hmm. there's plenty of other any other cool things to do, and I. I finished my master's and I, again, I wasn't done learning. I knew I wasn't, I knew I wasn't an expert Mm -hmm. yet. So I I started my PhD, but I also knew that I wasn't going to be a researching professor Mm -hmm. at that time. I like research. I want to learn, but I I was having so much fun educating people. I wanted to be in classrooms. I wanted to be on the sidewalk. I wanted to be in museums. I wanted to tell people I didn't want to just learn it. I wanted to like tell people about the cool stuff yeah, that I've learned. Yeah. So I started building a career that way. And as a PhD student, I got a part-time job at the Ontario Science Center, mm. which was absolutely formative. I I volunteered at the York University Astro Astrophysical Observatory, okay. which is now the Allen I. Carswell Observatory, um, under Paul Delaney. Absolutely formative. Very uh they do they do a lot of public outreach there. Mm. And then when I when I finished my PhD, I was like, I'm going to museums. I'm going to go work in museums. I'm going to educate people. Yeah. And so I I freshly minted a, a astrophysicist with a PhD, and I went and I worked at Telespark in Calgary, mm-hmm. and then I ended up at the Ottawa Canada Aviation and Space Museum okay. as the science advisor, and that was a fantastic experience. Amazing people at that mm-hmm. at that museum, and it was all those jobs were all about taking the world of science and figuring out how to engage people with it and how it fits into their lives and how, why they should care about it. And it was really, really fun. You get to meet people, you get to, you get to, you, you get hands on with the engagement yeah. and that was really, really fun. So that's what I built my career into.
0: Yeah. Um, I feel like, I think that the route that you took like is maybe a bit unique because I, I, I imagine that many folks who go into their PhD, like, the focus thereafter is probably I'm going to be a researching professor or go into research or that sort of thing. And you find more, like at least the time when I was born in academia, um, you find that a lot of professors don't want to do the teaching. They want to just focus on the research, right? So so I imagine that there was probably a, a really good like space for you to take this on, right? Like maybe not as many people would want to do the education and outreach part of the work that you're doing.
1: That's a good question. You know, the the industry is is slowly evolving to make more space for it. Mm-hmm. the The classic university department is researching professors who are teaching. They they have like a most of their job is research yeah. and some of their job is teaching. Yeah. And you want that because you you want your undergrads to learn from the people Absolutely. who are actually doing yeah. it. But then, you know, their focus is research and they're really good at what they do. But you also want. To have some influence from professors whose whose work is to be a good educator mm-hmm. not that a researching professor is necessarily a bad educator mm-hmm. it's just not it's like now now what i've done is i've left the museum world i'm back at a university but i'm in a teaching stream mm-hmm. and my entire job is to how best to deliver this content to undergraduates yeah. learning about space and so i can really steep myself in in really good pedagogy um, ways of uh, playing with the classroom to get students to work hands-on as much as I can. Um, so the the university space, I think, is especially at York is nice is nicely evolving towards this to have more of these teaching stream professors, mm. and you have a good balance of researching stream and teaching stream, and you get a good mix of skills that the undergraduates learn from. So I think that's really really good. Uh, I would say that from my experience doing my PhD and then moving into the museum world, that was, the jobs were kind of not there.
0: Mm.
1: Like museums weren't looking for what I was offering. Um, Because museums, museums have their own um, specialities. Mm. They have really fantastic interpreters and curators are incredibly good at what they do. Um, So the, the museum world also was kind of like, is starting to sort of, how do we take someone with a phd in science and put them in in these roles yeah. in in the museum world I, I this is and this is my ultimate goal this is i've always told this to people i i want to blend that like that the education science university world with like the public education public outreach yeah. engagement museum world yeah. the more those sort of two blend together and overlap with each other the better both audiences sure. learn the material so I think there there there's a nice trend over the last fifteen years or so of of museums museums coming a little bit to the academic side and uh academia coming a little to the public outreach side
0: yeah there there seems to always be this challenge in academia of knowledge transfer right so it sounds like mm-hmm. it sounds like this is at least in the world that you're living in that this is starting to happen you know in a in a better way I would suppose, I suppose.
1: oh definitely I, I like York is really great they ha- York both researching stream and teaching stream. Yeah professors at york are, are we have some incredible educators yeah, cool. there that do some wondrous i'm learning every day um how to be a better professor from the people at york yeah. they're so good
0: yeah yeah um i was uh, uh reading a little bit of it in your in your um bio on your academic page about how you spent some time in different parts of the world now I, I don't know if it was looking through some of these major telescopes but like in hawaii yeah. and California yeah. and Chile and Arizona, <laughs> but like, is that, are we talking about those massive telescopes that people, yeah. Is that what we're talking about?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, that was one of my, one of the things I, when I left my undergrad, yeah. I was, t- I had a an undergraduate supervisor thesis supervisor and I asked her, I'm like, I want to do, I want to look through telescopes. That's what I want to do. Cause I didn't do that as an mm-hmm. undergrad. And she was, she directed me towards York actually. Mm-hmm. And she helped me get into York and I ended up with Pat Hall and Pat Hall is an observational astronomer um, using optical telescopes. So if you, you know, the light that comes from the sky, the light that the human eye can can uh, sense is just, is called optical light. Mm. And the, there's this entire electromagnetic spectrum from the X-ray off to the radio mm. and everything in between. So you have X-ray, gamma mm-hmm. ray or gamma ray X-ray, and then you have UV light and you have uh, optical light mm. and you have infrared light and radio light. And Pat is an optical astronomer using optical telescopes—the classic telescope, you know, right. that you think you put your right. eye to right. and right. you you look at the sky. So I, I stepped in sync with him, and we started. And one of the first things he he got me to do as a PhD student was start writing telescope proposals. And I didn't even know that, that was, got me mean, off that was telescope proposals. Yeah, I
0: don't even know what that means. Oh man, <laughs>
1: it's it's like it's like the you have to tell okay what you do. It's it's awesome, um, and it's a ton of work. You. There's some telescope out there. Um, for example, we use the, the Gemini telescope a lot, it's, which is a twin telescope, one in Hawaii on Mauna Kea okay. and one in Chile. Okay. And they're identical telescopes. And we wanted to use them to monitor quasars, which we can get into in a bit. Uh, but what you got to do is you got to write this proposal to them. And what you, you say, OK, here are the 10 things, 10 objects I want to look at. So I already know what they are. I already know all this about them. I want to look at them with your telescope, with this specific instrument, because there's multiple instruments mm-hmm. that you can put on the back of the telescope. Okay. I want to look at each one for this amount of time. This one needs 30 minutes of observing. This one needs an hour and a half of observing, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And after I do all of that, here's what I'm expecting to learn. And you write page after page of all the, the science you're expecting to learn from the observations you're going to get from their telescope mm-hmm. and the papers you're going to write from that observation. And then you submit it, and they get submissions from all the other astronomers, and then they have a team of people who look at all the proposals and decide who gets time on the Mm -hmm. telescope. It's a... It's like... It was like the first time... It was probably my first um, real training on deadlines, because the telescope is like, this is the deadline, and that's the deadline you need to submit. Uh, It's a lot of work. You really... It forces you to learn your science because you need to communicate what you mm-hmm. want to do. And luckily we we got a good amount of time and we were able to, to observe. Um, in in the astronomy world, in the professional world, we have two kinds of observing. We have queue based observing, which is where you you write your proposal, you get accepted, and then you send them all the targets mm. and they, they do the observations okay. and then they send it, the data back to you and you don't go anywhere. Okay. Um, and then they have classic observing, whereas the like this, you go to the telescope, you stay up all night, you pu- you move it around the sky. Which sounds like a whole lot more
0: fun, by the way. It's way more
1: fun, <laughs> and I got and got the opportunity. Where did I go? So I went to Kit Peak a few times. That's in Arizona, just outside Tucson. Okay. Um, incredible uh, skies, very dark skies, mm-hmm. very dry skies, and um has a is like sort of the center of of optical astronomy for the United States. Mm-hmm. So on the top of this mountain in the middle of the desert there's like 15 telescopes or something mm. like that. I went to California, just outside of San Diego, mm. the Palomar Observatory. Mm. That has a, uh has a 5 meter telescope. It's 5 meter the the mirror on the back of the telescope is 5 meters wide. Okay. It was once the largest telescope on the on the planet. Okay. Um and then where else did I go? Oh that I think that's it. I think those are the only two places that I myself went to observe. Okay. Yes. And then the ones in Hawaii and Chile were Q based, okay. so I didn't actually get to go, okay. unfortunately, to okay. those
0: places. <laughs> okay. And what is it like when you look through these telescopes? Through these well, you
1: know, you don't actually get to put your eye to them um, because they have cameras on the back. Okay. And they, it's, so what you see. So you're sitting in, I have a bunch of great pictures I could show you. You're sitting like at a desk in, in what they call a warm room. And that warm room is separate from where the telescope is. And you have all the, there's any windows that all, all the light is stopped so that no light can get into where the telescope Mm -hmm. is from your room. And you're sitting, there's like probably five or six monitors around you. One, one manages the telescope and one manages the instrument and one manages this and the dome. And there's a bunch of stuff and you you you're you're just coding and you're typing and you're moving it around, and then you hit go" and you just sit back and you let it do the the observation, which means the telescope is pointed at the target you wanna collect mm-hmm. data on, and then you have it you open the aperture so that light is allowed to hit the c c d mm. which collects the light and say you need it to be open for ten minutes as it constantly collects light mm. from the same object, and then it closes and then it'll read out onto your screen and you see it like it's almost sometimes like a line by line, the readout and you, and you get this sort of like black and white image of this target and it, and it looks like nothing, but it's amazing. You're getting this, this light that's been traveling through the universe. Mm. That's fallen into your, your bucket of your, you've collected it with your light bucket, your telescope. And you get, you're like, that's my light now. Like I collected it. it, It's on my CCD. It's yeah. It's wild. It's a wild experience. Um, But you know, one of the things i really liked about it was not the collecting the observations but then hitting the go button and then i could step outside for a second and these places are in such remote locations mm. that the sky is like un- unlike any sky you would ever see yeah. in even a small even like like obviously toronto mm. and the gta mm. is a light bubble mm. but even like in smaller little areas around toronto the sky is not even mm. close to what you would get in these, like, middle of the Arizona desert or middle of the mountains in, yeah. in California. And that was a really great experience.
0: We, um, my wife and I have been a couple of times to Jasper, because we live here in Edmonton, went to the dark, go to the Dark Sky Preserve. And um, yeah. it's, it's amazing. Like, it's, it's amazing what you see. But uh, some of these folks who have these massive telescopes themselves, and they're like, yeah, you want to see this one star or whatever it is? <laughs> and I'm like, okay. And we have this expectation of what that looks like. And it's just a <laughs> dot of light. Or, like, yay! Yeah. Hey. And so you're I kinda, it's kind of <laughs> underwhelming. Like, it's, uh, you know, it's cool. Like, it, I think the way you described it was really neat. Like, it's this light bucket, It's this light that's traveling from so far. And we're like, yeah. I really appreciate that narration, but that's not what was going through my head when I would look at these things for the first time, these massive telescopes. So,
1: you know what's crazy? Is yeah, stars are like, Completely unremarkable through a telescope, yeah, right? Yeah. You you look at them and you're like, yeah, it's, it just looks like what it looks like when I look yeah, at it with like, yeah, my, my eyes, yeah. and that's got a really cool. Um, when the first telescopes started being used, in like this was like Galileo times, mm. like Galileo was one of the first using a telescope, and they pointed them at stars and they pointed them at planets and they realized how different they were, uh, because when you point a telescope at a star, it still just looks like a little tiny point yeah, point of light, yeah. but when you point it at a planet, you see the planet. Mm. You don't just see a point of, like, if you if I, if I you and I went out and I said, hey, there's Mars, it would look like a red star, mm-hmm. a, a pretty bright red mm-hmm. star. But then if we pointed a telescope at it, you would see, mm-hmm. like, and you would even maybe see a little bit of the, like, different colors mm-hmm. of the surface. Mm-hmm. Totally different experience. When you did it with uh, in Jasper there, were you able to look at a
0: planet? No, they were just pointed. Yeah, they were, they were just pointed at certain stars or whatever. So. Oh,
1: man. When I was in my fourth year at, at McMaster, we had to do this observing project in with Ralph put, sorry, this wasn't, it wasn't with Ralph put, sorry, I forget the professor. We had to do this observing project and myself and a couple of undergrads and one grad student, um, Rob Cockroft, we had this, we borrowed the university's telescope and we went out to a dark sky preserve Mm. just outside of Hamilton Mm. and, and we set it up. And it was the first time I had looked through a telescope since I was like maybe, I don't know, seven or eight years old. And we pointed it at Saturn And it just blew my mind because I could see it. I looked through the telescope and I could see there's the planet. I could see the rings. I could even see one of the moons, Titan, the largest moon. And it was a moment where I, I, I I realized like how you can almost like reach out and touch it. Like that point of light you see, it's a whole other world and it doesn't take much to see it. You don't even need a strong telescope to see the rings of Saturn. Saturn. So, so next time you're at a you see a telescope with someone got a telescope out say hey are there any planets up right now and get them to point it at it
0: yeah i, yeah. I have you ever seen these youtube videos where people take their real strong digital lenses and they shoot yeah. it out the sky and and they're like wait for it wait for it, and then all of a sudden saturn just appears and it just <laughs> looks so magical like it's incredible. Oh,
1: man it's a it's a wonderful experience seeing a planet for the first time especially saturn or Jupiter mm. or, or Mars. Mm. Uh, they're very impactful images,
0: yeah. I would say. Yeah, very cool. Um, we have this major telescope up right now in space that was launched, the James Webb Telescope. Yep. Like what, uh, first of all, uh, I want to hear your thoughts. Oh, I want to know about why it's such an incredible um, yeah. uh, uh, scope, but um, just for them to get it out there, right? Like. Yeah. Wasn't that quite the ordeal? Like it had to, didn't it have to unfold itself or something like that? Yeah, and,
1: yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was a complicated mission to get off the ground. How long were they planning the, that? To say the like, least, like
0: the James Webb. Oh book. man,
1: decades. Oh, okay. Like they were probably they were probably planning that mission from. I mean, you can trace it back pretty far, like the early two thousands. It was really, really humming along as mm-hmm. a project. Um, when I started grad school, which is like two thousand. I think it was 8, mm-hmm. 2007, they they were like, yeah, it's right around the corner. JWST is going to be launching. And I was like, cool, you know. Uh, it took until 2021 for it to get off the ground. It launched on Christmas Day last year. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, so what you had to do for JWST, the James Webb Space Telescope, is it's a six-meter telescope. So that what that means is that the primary mirror that the light is bouncing mm-hmm. off of, when the first thing that it, the light hits Is six meters wide. Now, a single six meter wide mirror is impossible to launch into space. Mm. And the reason you put it in space, if you're wondering, is because we on the surface of this Earth are below a very thick fluid that we call our atmosphere, Mm. which is just, it's like, you know what it's like? This is a great analogy. Imagine you're in a swimming pool Mm. and you swim to the bottom of the pool. And then you look up to the surface, and you try to see what's going on mm. above the surface, mm. like people walking around the pool or something. Yeah. And it's all like jumbly and weird. You can't look through it's it, like right? A huge
0: filter, essentially, because it, Exactly. Yeah.
1: That's what's happening. You you go outside. You're looking through a hundred kilometers of of gas mm-hmm. of atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And we've found great ways to to manage that, but a really great way to to get around it is to put your telescope in yeah. space. Yeah. But you can't put a six-meter single mirror mm. in a rocket ship; it doesn't work. So what they did is they ha- they segmented it into these these little pieces, and then they folded it up mm. into a what would fit in like the nose cone of a rocket. Wow. And so that that the the engineering yeah. required to develop a telescope that would then go into space and then deploy itself perfectly, with no human intervention possible, took a. I would say 15 years of development and testing to get it right, and the most important thing is that if it went wrong, there was nothing they could do about it. So they took their time. They they engineered it very well. It unfurled perfectly, and it's now it's operating and it's and it's taking science, taking data, and it's the next generation of space telescope.
0: So six meters. How's that compared to like the mirror that's on Hubble? Hubble's two
1: and uh, two-ish meters. Oh shoot, two meters, two-ish meters. And Hubble's
0: still operational,
1: though. Hubble's still operational. Um, It what Hubble's got a what what they were doing with Hubble because Hubble's at like a five or six hundred kilometer orbit. It's it's not that far up. Hmm. Like you know what's a five hundred kilometer drive? You know, um, is that like Edmonton to Calgary? Uh, I
0: don't know.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. That's not that far, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. That's where Hubble is. Yeah. It's just yeah. it's just up, right? But they put JWST at 1.5 million kilometers away. Um, so Hubble was close, is close, and could be could be serviced. You could go and fix it, okay. and they did that okay. uh, four or five times. They they flew up with the shuttle and they fixed mm-hmm. Hubble a, b- a bunch of times, and so it's been able to maintain mm-hmm. science over 25 years, 30 years, and so it's still operational. But it will not be serviced again. Once it breaks, it's done. Mm-hmm. Whereas JWST was designed to be launched to where it is, and no one's ever going to go and fix it, so it needed to be perfect. Uh, but it's great that they're both operating at the same time because Hubble is an optical telescope and UV telescope, whereas infrared, or sorry, JWST is an infrared mm-hmm. telescope, which are two different portions of the electromagnetic spectrum. Mm-hmm. And so you launching JWST. It it doesn't necess- it does it's not it doesn't replace Hubble it like adds on to Hubble, mm-hmm. and as soon as we lose Hubble, then we lose the optical, optical side of the spectrum up there. Uh, so it's great to have them both operating at the same time, giving us great coverage of the electromagnetic spectrum. So is
0: JWST? It doesn't have any optical component to it, then?
1: No, it's only an infrared telescope. Yeah, so it it the light that it collects is, um, light that is redder. Than the then red light. Mm-hmm. So if you look at um the rainbow yeah. that we see with our eyes, the the you have like stuff on the bluish end mm-hmm. of stuff, and then the reddish end. And JWST looks at the light beyond red, mm. which is longer wavelength light. And Hubble does like the the bluish and the UV, which is on the other side of the of the spectrum.
0: And so is it just that the optical part is just not necessary, or they could could you even add an optical uh, element oh, good to, question. To JWST and have both the infrared
1: and the optical, or? you couldn't add anything to it now for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the yeah, why why infrared? Why not continue with the optical? And it's because it, it's because it was a part of this. Uh, it's a part of the science that we weren't getting with mm. Hubble, right? So you, it was like we we've already done this. Okay. Now let's do this, and you get you get different information out of it. Mm. So there's a couple of things um, with the infrared light we're able to look further back in time on galaxies. Mm. So we can we can look back to when the first galaxies were formed. With optical light, it's not as easy to do that because um, the first galaxies were shining... Uh, the light that we get from them... The light that we get from them has been traveling through space for billions mm. of years and is now infrared light. So we need an infrared telescope if we want to see those first galaxies. Mm. Um, but then also... The a very a very clear usefulness of infrared light is when you look at dust. So dust, it, it, you you might recognize dust impact when you like look at. A, have you ever been at a campfire and like shone a flashlight through the smoke? Yeah, yeah, yeah you know, and you can see there's dust there, and yeah. you're, you're... or you know ash the or something. Or yeah, and your your light your flashlight is bouncing back at you. Mm-hmm. The the optical light reflects off the dust. Okay. So you can't see through it as easily, but infrared light goes right through it. Mm. So you can see through dust with infrared light. You can look into locations like where stars are forming Mm. because stars form in these big clouds of dust Mm. that you can't see with an optical telescope, or at least you can't see the inside with an optical telescope. So an infrared telescope is designed to do the things you can't do. And it's really, really useful, precious science that you want to have.
0: Yeah. And so you said, um, you say a million and a half kilometers. Yeah. Does that put it outside of Earth's orbit
1: then? O- outside of the Moon's orbit, Sorry, even moon. okay. it's yeah. Y- yeah, it's it's a uh, it, the Moon orbits at like four hundred thousand kilometers. Okay. Uh, so it's it's beyond that, yeah. So okay, I
0: don't even know what that means. But... Yeah, it's, it's far. It's it's far. <laughs>
1: yeah. Um. And and we put it that far out because we want to be away from. Uh, it's an infrared telescope. We don't want it to get. Uh, We want to be out in nice dark cold space in infrared you might be you know what is infrared light it you know it's redder than red light we we tend to experience infrared light as heat Mm. so when you feel heat you're feeling infrared Mm. radiation Mm. hit your hit your hand so heat is a bad thing to for a telescope that's trying to sense infrared Mm. light so you want your instrument to be in a very cold place, away from any sources of radiation. Um, like, you want it to be blocked from the sun, so it has this huge sun shield. I don't know if you've seen that. It's got this big yeah, yeah, sun yeah, yeah. shield it had to unfurl, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it, and it's out way out there in dark, deep space so that it can be nice and cold and, so it's not and orbiting, sense the light it's from far away. It's not orbiting the Earth or any... Technically, it's orbiting the sun. Okay. Yeah, so it's, it's in an orbit. Now, there's these... The interesting thing... So this is a fun conversation is where did you actually put it? Um, if you think about gravity, what what you know about gravity, what we all know about gravity is that like you hold, if you hold a pencil above a desk, it's going to pull it to the ground, mm-hmm. right? It's holding you in your chair, mm-hmm. right? Um, it holds the moon in orbit around us. Mm-hmm. That's what, what's gravity is doing. And you can then, you, you can imagine a scenario. So we're, imagine you're like an astronaut and you, um, you start, You're you're at Earth and you start flying towards the sun. Mm. There's you can imagine there's there's a place in between the Earth and the Sun where when you get wherever that place is, you'll feel the the same strength of gravity coming from the Earth as the same as the Sun. Mm. So it's almost like you'd be pulling and being pulled equally in two directions, right? Yeah, yeah. So that is called a Lagrange point. Okay, it's a it's a a a location of stable gravity
0: Mm.
1: where you're. You're, it's sort of like a little sweet spot. And you can calculate exactly where that spot is with, like, Newton's laws of gravity. Mm. There are a few others. There's four others. That's one of them, right in between the Earth and the Sun. Mm-hmm. There are... But one of them is on the other... Exactly opposite the Sun on the other side of the Earth. It's called the L2 Lagrange point. Okay. And it it that one seems less intuitive, and it just comes out of the math. Um, but that's where... JWST is it's exactly opposite the sun directly away from the sun um about 1.5 million kilometers in orbit around the sun so as earth goes around the sun it stays in that spot constantly almost think about it like the earth is always blocking the sun as much as possible Yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah
0: yeah okay so so it is still feeling the effects of earth's gravitational pull in addition to the sun's gravitational pull Yep. okay Yep. Okay, so it's always going to be in alignment with, with the Earth, then, to some extent. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not saying super simplifying super that, but...
1: Yeah, no, you got it. It stays yeah. with the Earth, and they both go around the Sun sort of at the same rate. How the f
0: did they do that? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, there's these five... The It's really cool the way the math works out. We call them Lagrange points after the uh, the mathematician that figured it out. Uh the the one that I told you makes a lot of intuitive sense. The one in between yeah, yeah, the sun yeah, and the yeah, earth, right? Yeah. That makes a lot of yeah. intuitive sense, but there are four others that don't make as much intuitive sense, but they are still gravitationally sweet mm. and you can, there's sort of stable spots that you could put things and they kind of sit there without much effort. Is it because uh, of the so, other
0: planets that also have an effect on that too? Or it's that just
1: happens? the sun and the earth. The That's earth. it. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Wow. Uh, one of them, another one is, uh, ahead of us in the in our orbit so if you follow earth's orbit a little bit ahead there's Mm -hmm. one there there's one trailing us in our orbit Mm -hmm. and then there's one on the other side of the sun um so there's these five lagrange points and l2 which is where jwst jwst is is a good spot to to put that telescope
0: this this person lagrange lagrange is everything yeah yeah like how do they even think to figure this out or look into this like i don't even know how that happens
1: I think you, you know, you're looking at, yeah, I I don't have a great story for that. Um, But the, I remember learning it as an undergraduate student, where this was like, one of our lectures was like, deriving the Lagrange points. And it's, it's a, it comes out of, it comes out of gravity, it comes out of Mm -hmm. understanding Newton's law of gravity, and how two, two sources of gravity interact with each other. And you end up with these, If you do the calculus of it all, you end up with these spots. Yeah,
0: it's wild. I want to get into the learnings of of JWST, but before I Ah, uh, before I get into that, though, just like as an astrophysicist, I guess, um, like, do the I don't know if this sounds stupid, but (laughs) based on the laws of physics that we know, like, are those laws violate? Do you think they could be violated in other, like, like out there, or do you think it preserves throughout the universe? Like, I.
1: Yeah, good question. Um,
0: is it a good question? I don't
1: know. <laughs> no, it's a good... Yeah, it's a great question. You know, the ultimate goal of astrophysics is to uncover the ultimate truths of the universe, yeah. right? And we've... I would say, you know, this... I, I'm not active... I don't feel like I'm actively contributing to that. Um, but great scientists, it, both currently and before me, have been done a really great job at uncovering some of those those ultimate truths. There's things like the the forces of nature, the the fundamental forces, so like gravity being a fundamental force, mm. electromagnetism and the strong and weak. Mm. These these fundamental forces that shape the universe. Mm. Like that's that's pretty pretty solid truth. Um one thing that when you ask this question, one thing that le- leaps out to me is our understanding of how gravity acts and The way we understand it currently is through the theory of general relativity, Mm. which is Einstein contributed back in the Mm. early 1900s, which describes gravity as it acts, how it how it creates um, an attractive force and how that attractive force can be calculated. Mm. And it's very successful. It's one of the most incredibly successful scientific um, accomplishments of humanity ever. Mm. Uh, It's been tested numerous times and it and it. And it passes. It it always passes. But there's always a chance when you do some of these tests of these big theories that it may not perfectly pre- predict. Uh, for example, um, uh, trying to understand how how galaxies collide with each other. That's a that's a good test of general relativity, mm. and mapping where mass goes, and it and it survived those tests. Um, testing a really great one is um, t- uh, testing how y- general relativity is really well tested in extreme situations so like black around black holes near black holes spinning black holes mm. and how light or matter acts near those um, and in just recently in like 2015, 2016, 2017 they started testing the mergers of black hole theory okay. where if you take two black holes and you merge them together Einstein's theory predicts that some things will happen and then they finally were able to measure those things happening mm. so i guess what i'm trying to say here is we're 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 not done testing we have we have these like some fundamental truths that we've gone into serious detail on mm. but we are still working on testing them mm. to see if they are the actual final truth mm. and the and i think we all know that ultimately we're only we're only able to do so good a job in all all science is is approximating Mm -hmm. nature and we just want to make our approximations as as close as possible but if you know there's still there's always one more pebble to turn over Mm -hmm. there's always one more grain of sand to put on the pile Mm -hmm. so we're it's not complete in any way
0: yeah
1: yeah um yeah no thanks for that um (laughs) I don't know if that answered that question, but well, no. I, I wouldn't say of what we know. I, I can't imagine that anything is going to be overly violated, like where we would throw it all out to be like, "Oh, we're completely wrong." I don't think we're at that. I think we've we've done a really good job of narrowing down on what's going on in the universe, but there's a lot of there's a lot still to figure out.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's just amazing what like the short amount of time that we. That science has kind of really been a thing, like maybe what four, five, six hundred years, maybe I don't know how long, but just the amount of discoveries we've been able to make in that short amount of time, which is like such a short, like, like in terms of the universe, is, like it's just it's a drop in the bucket, obviously, right? Um, but the 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 discoveries we've been able to make, even just to identify like the Big Bang and and that we know we know that there there were some forces that that brought that together, but I think there if they're still discovering what those forces really are or how that even happened yep. but like just in that short amount of time we've been able to get to that point you know it's just amazing
1: i i am equally blown away by humanity's progress yeah. over the last couple of hundred years not just in in science but in like engineering and what we have built in the mm-hmm. last century computers computers are in like those are new right mm-hmm. computers didn't exist in like the 60s and yeah. not really and now they're like it's like you like you compare a computer like today to a computer then, like it's mind-blowing. And I, you know, one of the this is one of the reasons I do science engagement so much, is it, it may seem like someone pointing a telescope at some at a black hole and trying to just learn about it for the sake of learning about it, it may seem like a waste of time some for to some. Mm. But the all of that, all of those scientists around the world doing all of those random questions are contributing in some way to some cool technology you have or some advancement that humanity has made or some structure of our society that we rely on. The The research that scientists do are so fundamental to mm. our, our innovation. Uh, even if the individual accomplishments of a single scientist don't translate to that, it, the collective approach to science has done
0: wonders. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, when you think of JWST and some of the recent discoveries, what uh, what are things that people don't really know about that really stand out for you?
1: Well, uh, ooh. so my favorite thing about JWST is that it was designed with exoplanets in mind. So back when, this is cool, here's a cool history of science for you. When Hubble was launched mm. in, I think it was 91,
0: 1991,
1: okay. exoplanets did not exist Meaning, we, we hadn't discovered them yet. We, uh, lots of astronomers expected them to exist. And an exoplanet is a planet orbiting another star. Mm. We have eight planets in our solar system. You go out and you look at stars at night. All of those stars have planets mm. orbiting them. But we hadn't discovered them yet. Mm. Now, fast forward to when JWST launches, uh, which is 2021, exoplanet science is now like a department at a university. Right. Mm. You have you have and in Canada specifically, there are some incredibly good exoplanet researchers and their job is to find exoplanets around other stars, determine what kind of planet they are. Mm. Are they like Earth? Are they like Jupiter? You know, what kind of what are they like? Right. And and now since we have this telescope that was designed in the exoplanet era, Mm. it has tools. That can be used to study the exoplanets in detail, and one of the more recent ones so it started collecting telescope data in June ish mm. and over the over the last few months they've released a couple of uh, spectra of exoplanet atmospheres mm. so this is this is what they do they they point the telescope at a star that they know an exoplanet is there. It's already been discovered right the from our point of view on earth and from JWST's point of view the planet's going around and it passes in front of the the star from your from the telescope's point of view mm-hmm. right so the planet is it's like it's like a little mini eclipse right. sort of yeah, the yeah, planet yeah. is passing in front of the star yeah. if that planet has an atmosphere then the light from the star is just right around the edges of the little planet going around mm-hmm. the light from the star is going through the atmosphere it's mm-hmm. transmitting through mm-hmm. and when you put light through a gas, the gas always leaves a fingerprint it what it does is it it, it absorbs little bits of light in specific places like um, if uh, if you if it has hydrogen in its atmosphere, mm-hmm. the hydrogen will absorb a bit of like a little bit of red light right. And if it has carbon dioxide in its atmosphere, it'll absorb a little bit of other kind of light. Mm. So this fingerprint is left behind as the light goes through the atmosphere. So they take the data from JWST, and they can look at the spectrum, the rainbow of light, yeah. and see what kind of gases are in an atmosphere mm-hmm. yeah. around a, a planet, around a star, uh, 50 light years away, 100 light years away, 1,000 light years away. This is... And, And not only can they do it, it, it's built to do it for, like, thousands of exoplanets. So that's just cool on its own. But now think about, before we were able to do this, all we could really say about an exoplanet is, like, how big it is and how far away it Mm -hmm. is, maybe a little bit about its mass. But if you can study the atmosphere of a planet... That has implications. it has implications like imagine you studied our atmosphere and you found oxygen and you found methane right and nitrogen like that those are indications of life if you find the same things around exoplanet atmospheres like it's gonna it's gonna change the game it's it's gonna completely open up what we think a planet is in the so in the universe
0: and our detection of these atmospheres like is it is it fairly
1: accurate like oh yeah Mm -hmm. like the data that's that i've seen there was one that they pointed out i forget the name of the planet And they were like, look, here's a clear indication of carbon dioxide, Mm. CO2 right there. Boom. Mm -hmm. This is, uh, you know, checked by hundreds of scientists. Like this is, this is a legit detection of CO2 in an atmosphere. Um, so it's, it's, it's accurate. It's based on all of understanding. Uh, yeah, it's good. I mean, you have to couple this with a lot of other things, right? So you can't just, the, the, you can't just say, oh, CO2, that means life, right? Mm-hmm. You can't do that. Um, you need a variety of things. Sure. To make a big claim, you need big evidence, yeah. right? Yeah. So, you know, this is one part of looking for life in the universe. Uh, but yeah, it's accurate. And I'm really excited to do it. What they've done so far is big planets, like gas giant planets mm-hmm. like Jupiter. I'm really excited to see the data come out about terrestrial planets, little tiny rocky planets. Mm-hmm. What do their atmospheres look like? Because that's way more close to home, right? Sure, sure.
0: Wow. Um yeah, very And looking
1: on it and just to add on to this, yeah. this is like Canada's bread and butter. So you go over to like McGill mm-hmm. in, in Montreal and there's like a whole team of exoplanet researchers there using JWST mm-hmm. to do this work. And not just McGill, but like they have a good a good research group there. Um they're they're all across the country. Canada has a lot of exoplanet scientists. So Canada's right there doing this work
0: is j w s t just constantly sending data back or is there like what's the control on it look like like can someone actually direct what j w s t should be pointing at or
1: yeah wow that yeah that's a good question so there's there's a whole office um group of people designed to ma- to manage j w s t mm. and they do the telescope proposal situation so they 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 call it oh. cycle one cycle two cycle three. And you, you as a scientist, if I wanted to use JWST, I got to write a telescope proposal, submit it to them. And then they adjudicate it. They uh, determine who sh- deserves the time and who doesn't. And then there's a control room, like a mission control room mm. that points the telescope and collects the data and then sends the data back. Um, through NASA's Deep Space Network, that's so, got to
0: be the most competitive telescope proposal or process ever. Like, who actually gets time, right? Like, I yeah,
1: <laughs> I would imagine. Yeah, at the moment, it's probably it's probably the most competitive telescope off the planet. Yeah. Uh, but it's it's uh, yeah, it's it's incredibly competitive. Interesting fact: Canada has guaranteed time. Oh. so what that means and the reason is because we contributed some hardware mm. so part of the instrument is built in canada so when when canadians apply they we we're guaranteed five percent of the observing time and so when the canadians apply they for that five percent they're only competing against other canadians mm. so that it's still incredibly competitive but you're not com- competing against the entire world
0: but see there that's an interesting that's an interesting uh uh point or fact because um like the fact that can has contributed it allows us access to it right i don't know if, like people necessarily like I, i'm sure it was a lot of money and maybe people think oh that money could be best used somewhere else but like if we didn't contribute to it like we'd be at the mercy or, or, you know, we'd be competing with so many other folks, but we have this dedicated time. But then why don't we also in Canada have like a, a large optical telescope? Like, you know, we have like somewhere in Jasper or somewhere in the Rockies sure. or something. Like, why don't, why does that exist in Canada? Um, well, so, uh,
1: we have, so you say we, you're at the mercy of the other, of the rest of the world. Like the Hubble space telescope, we didn't contribute to Canadians use it, but usually through partnerships with other groups. Okay. Um, yeah, but Canada has a, a good history of astronomy. Um, so there's a couple of really, really incredible optical telescopes on the ground. Mm. Um, let's see, there's one in Antique, which is just outside of, of Montreal. Mm. Uh, great observatory. Um, York, York University has a one meter telescope, mm-hmm. although it's in Toronto, which makes it a, a bit difficult to use for um, deep space science. Mm. But they do some really great research with it and outreach. Mm. Um, I'm trying to so in Victoria or just outside of Victoria. Mm. There's the Dominion um, Observatory, okay. which is an optical telescope. It's been there for a hundred years, actually a hundred years now, mm. and it does some great work. And uh, there's 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 more, um, but Canada has contributed monetarily to the construction of big optical telescopes all around the world. For example, the Gemini telescope, the one that I used. Mm. Uh, We contributed money to that, and so we get guaranteed observing time. Mm. Another one is the Canada-France-Hawaii telescope, Mm. which is on the summit of Mauna Kea. Mm. And we also contributed to the building of that, and we have guaranteed observing timing on on that. So we do have optical telescopes. They're not all in Canada, because Canada, especially for an optical observatory, Canada isn't always the best place to build one, because you... You know you're trying to avoid clouds and you're trying to avoid bad weather you you build them in places that have no clouds mm. and no bad weather mm. so and have and access to infrastructure is a is a problem as well mm. so we we don't there we do have optical telescopes um on the ground but we we've pooled our money into bigger telescopes okay. elsewhere on the planet
0: okay we just wouldn't get a good bang for buck if we maybe had it here in Canada like the, with the same size and scope and scale that we Of those telescopes
1: are in Arizona. You might find some observing places in Canada that are as good as that, but I don't know of them.
0: Mm.
1: Though there's a group... um, uh, Not there's... Canadian astronomers, like the professional astronomers of Canada, um, are... We're pushing for a Canadian-led optical telescope in space Mm. um, that would replace... Sort of be like a Hubble replacement. um, And it's called Castor. And that is in... Currently, we, we have. Uh, I'm not. I'm not a part of it. But the the scientists in Canada that are working on it have developed the idea and are and are working on pushing it forward for funding and building. Mm-hmm. So Canada wants to do stuff
0: like that. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Um, I'm look really looking. This time has just flown by. It's already hour ten. Oh yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. Are you are you okay for a little bit more time or? Yeah not... let's let's keep going. Sure. Okay. Um, I mean, I, I also want to talk about, uh, the Artemis moon mission that happened and, and just like the, the purpose of that and, and it's, it's ended, right? Like it returned back, I think, right? Yeah. Um, it, so, so tell us, tell us folks about, you know, why this even happened. Like why, first of all, I mean, I don't, I've always been curious and never really dug into it. Like why haven't we returned back to the moon? Right? oh man and, and that's that, a good that, question and that always like obviously feeds the the conspiracy nuts but I mean <laughs> just but what why haven't we taken the time to go back is it well you know um so the you start
1: with the i I think the question to ask then is why did we go to the moon mm-hmm. um so that was the reason that we went to the moon and it wasn't we it was it was NASA um was because they had a a National um, impetus to do so, Mm -hmm. right? They were fighting the Soviets, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And they wanted they wanted to be the winner, and Mm -hmm. like they weren't hiding the fact that they were racing against the Soviets, right? This was like that was the goal. We're going to beat them to the moon, yeah. And so they and they rallied around that goal. Mm -hmm. Like the amount of money that the states dumped into space research at the time is dwarfs what they what they put into it now okay which is but i and i don't mean that in a bad way because what it did like what the the outcomes of that research like computers can be traced directly to the Mm -hmm. apollo program Mm -hmm. or the mercury program um the materials research like the materials that you see in like homes and apartment buildings and clothes and like eyeglasses and shoes Mm. a lot of that was came out of it like it was a Boon for scientific and engineering yeah. and, ma- and materials research. So there's this national impetus. They're in the Cold War. They push. They land on the moon. But in a lot of ways, it's it's running before walking. Mm. The the get the the reason to get to the moon wasn't scientific. It was it was something else. And then you can't you you can't sustain that level of funding. Mm. So the the Americans they win their ra- they win their race. And then the government's like, okay, like we can't do this anymore. Mm-hmm. We can't spend this much money on space. Although maybe, maybe I'm biased. Maybe they should still. <laughs> but um, they, you know, they they peel it back and they start siphoning yeah. siphoning it to other things. But I think that's a good thing because we didn't need to go to the moon then. Mm-hmm. What we should have been doing is what they what NASA did next, and that is building a presence in low Earth orbit mm-hmm. under under a thousand kilometers, mm-hmm. under two thousand kilometers, learning how to be in space close to home where you can you can get back easily you mm. can you can get there relatively easily mm. uh, what does this mean for the human body what does this mean for long-term mm. spaceflight? what what materials should we be building spacecrafts out of mm. how do we run missions how do we all of those things we need to we needed to start from scratch mm. and build that all up so the reason we haven't been back is because we've been learning how to be spacefaring mm. and that culminates with this International Space Station, yeah. which is uh the most complicated spaceship ever built. Um, those that don't know what the International Space Station is, it's an incredible piece of hardware. It's it's only about five hundred kilometers up, four five hundred kilometers up, orbits around the Earth once every ninety minutes, and it's mm. the size of a football field. Wow. Like if you've ever been to like a um, like like a in Edmonton, like if you ever go to a CFL game, right? Mm. Like. Ima- like that entire thing is a, yeah. the size of a space That's station. Innate. Wow. Right? Yeah. It's crazy how big it is. And it whips around the, the Earth at 30,000 kilometers an hour yeah. with six to 10 astronauts on board all the time. And they live there for months and months at a time, mm-hmm. learning how to be in space.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And we've done that for decades. And now, finally, NASA and the rest of the world. We're ready to make that next step. We've learned how... To, we're, we're, we've, for the most part, perfected low mm-hmm. Earth orbit. Mm-hmm. The next step for humanity is perfecting lunar operations. Mm-hmm. And that's what the Artemis program is. Mm-hmm. So the Artemis generation is all of the missions and, and humans and people and engineering that's required to get humans to the moon.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And Artemis 1 is the first mission in that whole program mm. which launched uh gosh it was like I forget what I forget it was like thirty days ago ish mm. that it launched um so so that's the whole backdrop yeah. so Artemis one is the is the first mission, and it's an unpersoned mission. there's no humans on board, mm. but it's a full dress rehearsal the whole thing the the human spacecraft rated for human spaceflight. Mm. The propulsion system, the communication system, the heat shield, all of the human operations on the ground mm-hmm. that would speak to the spacecraft, everything. Mm-hmm. Send to the moon, orbit the moon, come back. And that was the and first time we've just...
0: ever like orbited the moon, right?
1: That... Since um well, we with a human rated spacecraft, okay. it's the first time that's been that it's been done since the seventies. Okay. Though we do have a spacecraft orbiting the moon right now, and uh, a scientific spacecraft, mm. a robotic spacecraft that's taking images of the surface. Okay. Um, but that's not human, right? It's just a robot. Mm. Mm. Uh, the Artemis mission had on board the Orion capsule, mm. which is built for humans, and they were testing to see if a human could survive that mission that just mm. happened. Yeah. And if the human could make it back to the earth and go through the atmosphere mm. go through the, the fiery stuff mm. and the parachutes deploy mm. and all mm. that. Mm. So it looks like everything went as good as, or better than it could have.
0: Cool.
1: So that's good. Yeah. And what that means for us is that Artemis two is going to get a go ahead sometime in the next two years.
0: Yeah.
1: And Artemis two is going to do the exact same thing, but with humans mm. on board. Right. And the best part about it, there's going to be a Canadian on board.
0: That's
1: awesome. One of the four Canadian astronauts that we have, one of those four is going to be flying to the moon on that mission whenever it launches, 2024 probably.
0: And is the is the hope that they would actually land on the moon and then no no landing, it's a this
1: is what they did um in the Apollo era as well. The first the first human missions were orbits around the moon. Oh, okay. And then once they they do those rehearsals and and they've perfected that with humans on board. And then they'll start doing the missions down to the ground.
0: Okay.
1: Uh, I doubt a Canadian will be a part of that, though. I'm not. I could be proven wrong. I have no inside information on that. Yeah. Uh, but there's definitely going to be a Canadian orbiting the moon, which is huge, right? Like that's that's a big deal.
0: So it it kind of sounds like then, um, as far as with the Apollo missions and getting to the moon, and this time getting around to the moon, like it didn't seem like the propulsion technology was an issue like it seemed like from what i'm hearing it was more of a priority piece the funding was not sustainable which is why we didn't go to the moon but if we wanted to we probably could have is yeah. that fair to say
1: i think the we, the technology still existed and we knew how to do it but yeah. it wasn't a sustainable practice um mm. so yeah you need you need a a full you need a full a fully oriented space program to sustain something like that. Mm. And, and that's why I say it's like sort of running before walking. You know, Mm. we did it, we made it happen, but we didn't do it the most efficient way. And we, and we didn't do it with a whole um, picture of what space exploration should be and why we should Mm. actually be going to the moon. Uh, So like, you know, if you're doing that, you're you're not doing it for the right reasons. You're doing it to win the race. Uh, So it's good that we stepped back from it. It's good that NASA deprioritized it because we really needed to learn how to do the low earth orbit stuff. We needed to build a space station. And even more importantly, we needed to work as a, as a unified world, right? The space station isn't just a NASA project. It's Russia, Canada, it's got Mm. um, Japan, um, Europe, and like 15 other countries involved in it. So we needed to sort of unify there a little bit. Um, And now that we've, now that we've sorted that out, it's it's now time to do the next big step.
0: But what's still confusing me, though, is that if Artemis One was about designing the spacecraft that would be used by humans to make sure that everything is is essentially kosher for it to come back safely, all that kind of stuff, Artemis Two is now going to bring uh, humans into that uh, into that same uh, situation, um, and then hopefully then we could then go back to the moon, land on it, and then and go from there. But we did that. Right. So then, mm-hmm. like, what would we still need to I don't know, this may sound stupid, but what would we still need to learn then, like if we've already been to the moon and we know what it takes and the impact it has on humans or whatever. Or maybe we just didn't know enough and it was such a rushed mission. <laughs> I don't know. But uh, like, yeah,
1: I mean, uh, why that phased approach, I guess there's there's know? so much more science to do at the moon. Uh, one of the one of the major differences between the Apollo program and the Artemis program is the mm. location of the moon where you're going to be landing humans. Eventually, Apollo mm. landed them all on the on well, a variety of places. There was uh, a bunch of missions that landed, but they were sort of on the, the Earth facing side, mostly in the Maria in those dark areas. Mm. But the Artemis missions are targeting the South Pole oh. because the South Pole has a couple of craters there. That never the the bottoms of the craters right on the South Pole never see the light of day ever it, they're mm. permanently sh- they, we call them permanently shadowed regions and in those mm. regions we find there's water ice, large amounts mm. of ice water like h2o frozen mm. and that if you want to then you're what you're doing is you can see you can picture yourself uh what can I use this water for I, mm. well obviously we can use it for drinking, but if you break apart the H and the O, you can get different fuels you can get breathing um, uh, air. And Mm. now you're you're learning how to live off the land, right? Mm. Because if you want a sustained human presence throughout the solar system, Mm. learning how to live off the land is really important. What do we have there and how do we use it? So going to the moon, going to the South Polar region with the permanently shadowed region, we're going to learn how to harvest water and use that water to maintain a human presence. And that's only a three-day trip. And then you can use what you learned there to go and do the same thing on Mars. And that's an, an a six month trip or an eight month trip. So you need to, you don't want to just jump to an eight month trip, right? You want to learn how to live on the moon safely, out of reach of humans, but sort of closer, you know, three days drive is okay. Um, and then when you go to Mars, which is the next big step after that, you're you're ready for it.
0: So the moon is the next step. Like if you think about the International Space Station, low Earth orbit, yeah. we get to the moon, then the next, the ultimate goal there is Mars and obviously beyond. And
1: then what's the question? There's my question is what's beyond the, yeah. on what's Mars? Yeah. I yeah. think that the next step for human uh, human space exploration would be going to an icy moon, which would be Enceladus or Europa. So uh, Europa around Jupiter, Enceladus around Saturn. Um, maybe, or, yeah, yeah. I don't know where else. Yeah, those would be my, my two biggest ones. There's a few. Ganymede would be an interesting one. Callisto is an interesting one. Titan is an interesting moon. Yeah. So all of those places would be, but that's like 150 years in the future.
0: <laughs> and then that, but those launches probably would have to happen off of Mars, you think?
1: That's a, and you nail it on the head. One of the other things that you do with this is launching spacecrafts off of the moon or Mars mm. is easier because their gravity is smaller and they their mm. atmospheres are either non-existent or thin Mm. and that makes it easier to get into space so if you can if you can imagine a scenario where you can not only live on mars but you can do some some of the building of rockets on mars Mm. then that makes it easier to fly through the solar system
0: yeah so the next question space propulsion just i wanted to maybe end off on this and then ask my final two questions but just in terms of propulsion technologies like um I think, I think Elon Musk was on Joe Rogan's podcast. Joe Rogan asked him, he's like, um, you know, is it, is there any kind of technology that doesn't require sort of this kind of combustion sort of propulsion system? And he's like, can't think of anything. Right. I mean, I mean, obviously it's just one person's opinion. He's not the, you know, I wouldn't imagine he's the subject matter expert on this (laughs) entirely, but, but, uh, but at the same time, I mean, when he says something like that, it carries, carries at least you know, yeah. mainstream popular weight, right? Um, but then I hear the technology is like warp drive and all these kind of things. So like what's what excites you about space propulsion and what do you think those technologies look like?
1: You know, so Elon Musk isn't far off from this. Um, it depends on what you're trying to do. If you're trying to put something really small into space, like a like a little satellite that's like this big, like a, mm. a CubeSat or a Nanosat, mm. um, maybe you don't need a combustion engine um, Reaction. There's a a startup company, and I forget the name of this startup company, but what they do is they've been testing this this uh, method of getting things into space by literally throwing it. What they do is they have this this crazy spinning centrifuge thing. They attach the the payload onto the end of like a, a wire or something, and mm. they spin it up like crazy, and then they let it go, and it shoots up, mm. and they, they can actually achieve some pretty high altitudes with it. And so they're looking, they're investigating this. Um, there is also the idea of, and, and for those listening, I don't know if this is possible. There's the idea of space elevators, which has been the subject of science fiction for a long time, which is a literal elevator into space, which is technically possible, though engineeringly difficult is Mm. an easy way to say that. Um, but if you, but that, all of that stuff is like the spinning one that I was talking about, you know, like that's going to launch a little tiny thing. If you want to put yeah. like a human and all of their living quarters in a habitat, mm-hmm. and you want to get that off the ground, like the Delta V, the, this is what you need to, the, the space engineers are always thinking about Delta V. I need to, I'm starting at zero kilometers per second on mm-hmm. the surface of the earth. I need to get like eight, nine, 10, 11 kilometers per second to get into mm-hmm. orbit around the earth. So to go from zero to, 11,000 11, meters per second, like or is, or eleven kilometers per second, like like you need that's a lot of energy, um, right. and at the moment the only thing I can think of to get a human off the ground is some kind of combustion reaction. Mm.
0: Yeah, but but it, then but but then once you're outside yeah. of then what happens?
1: Once you're outside of the well of Earth's gravity, yeah. once you've gotten yeah. beyond the atmosphere and you're not so held on, there mm. are some really interesting options. A uh, one that we've tested. Um, over the last 15 years is ion propulsion. There's been a couple... There's been at least one really successful ion propulsion demonstration with a spacecraft called Dawn. It flew... It was launched with a chemical rocket off the ground, Mm. like a regular rocket. Once it was in space, it used an ion engine to fly off to uh, a asteroid called Vesta and then off to the dwarf planet Ceres after that using the ion Mm. engine. And an ion engine works just like any other rocket it shoots stuff out the back but instead of doing a chemical combustion reaction it's just doing this um what it does is it strips uh atoms from its electrons electrons Mm. from the atoms and then shoots the electrons and the atoms out the back Mm. and it creates it's the same idea you shoot something backwards and you go forwards but right. the it's using little little atoms and, el- and ele- electrons to do it. And mm. you it's a very, very small thrust. But if mm. you do it for a long... You can turn that engine on and run that engine for like a week or two weeks or a year. Mm. And it'll slowly build up acceleration. And you could conceivably use engines like that to move humans around the solar system. Say you wanted to. And those go would be electricity,
0: electric based engines. Then, like you could power it through solar or something like that.
1: Uh, or? Oh, yeah. Good question. Um, I guess you would. Yeah, you would. You would be the electricity on board would be powered. You know what? I don't know the answer to that question. It mm. depends because it. I would imagine you'd want to have that a scenario designed for when you're too far from the the sun, so you'd use some sort of nuclear reaction, like like a mm. de- nuclear decay, yeah, yeah. like plutonium or something. Yeah. Yeah, uh, But yeah, I imagine Dawn, Dawn had solar panels on it. So I imagine that's what it was used for, one of mm-hmm. the things at least. So that would be a way. And then there's also, um, and it sounds crazy, but solar sails. So okay. th- this has actually been technically demonstrated in space. The Planetary Society uh, launched a, and so did the Japanese, launched a a sail. It, it was compact and then it unfurled. And I think it was mm-hmm. about the size of a tennis court. And they oriented it so that the sun it would catch solar wind and Mm. catch uh, solar radiation and Mm. use that to accelerate and they demonstrated that they could do it and this is it's like literally like sailboats on an ocean (laughs) using the wind to move Mm. around it uses solar Mm. radiation to move around Mm. and that also can generate quite a lot a lot of acceleration if you leave it for a long period of time so these are methods that could be used viably in the future for moving large amounts of mass around the solar system. Uh, They still need testing, um, especially for human use. Um, But yeah, it's an interesting future that we have.
0: So you likely need the combustion-based engine to get us off of Earth. But then once you're kind of outside of Earth's pull and and all the things that Earth has to offer, then you can maybe use something else. Yeah,
1: definitely. Um, There's definitely options. Like you could never use an ion engine to get off the ground. It just doesn't create enough thrust. You need that combustion Mm. punch to get off the ground. Mm. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Okay. All right. Um, Mindful of the time. And we always appreciate the conversation. And, um, you know, we always, uh, I want to talk about space junk, but that we can leave that for maybe in a future discussion part two. But yeah, yes, for sure. Because there's so much to talk about. But uh, we always ask our guests a couple of questions. Are you okay if we move on to? Yeah, let's do it. Um, okay, so we have our five for dinner question, which is dead or alive, who are five people you'd want to have supper with? And I guess that bit of twist is like, would you uh, want them individually or together?
1: Definitely together. Okay. Because then you're seeing, okay, so I was thinking about this. So it's funny you mentioned Elon Musk, because I really think it would be fun to chat. I've, I wanted to chat with Elon Musk for a long time, not because right. I revere Even though he owns Twitter now, like you're
0: still okay with him now?
1: I don't know, man. That, yeah, that whole Twitter debacle. <laughs>
0: Yeah. <laughs> he is,
1: I, I, he certainly, don't get me wrong. The contributions he's made to society are, are great. Right. Yeah, Obviously. Yeah, right. Yeah, but he, yeah. he definitely hasn't, he, he's like the way he's treating space doesn't jive mm. well with me. And mm. certainly the way he, what he's done with Twitter is weird. Um, mm. So one of the things he's doing with Twitter or with, sorry, with space is launching all these satellites and, and that would have, been a great discussion topic on space debris, but yeah, he, the amount of satellites that he's launching into space is dwarfing all of the satellites that we've ever launched into space in all of humanity and history ever. And that, that's a, that's a defining moment in human history. Uh, we are exponentially launching things into space primarily due to him. And mm-hmm. it has had large impact on astronomical sciences now to SpaceX's credit they are now um dialoguing with the scientific community and but i would i would still love to just sit with him one on one and like off the record like pick his brain on on the impact he thinks he's having on science mm. and and t- try and tell him communicate to him the impact he's having on science so i Elon Musk would be a really interesting one to chat because once
0: those satellites are out there Jesse like they're out there right like you can't do anything you can't bring it like we can't clean up this debris. well it right? depends
1: um you we can it depends on where they go the low earth orbit ones like anything under 2,000 kilometers eventually will well some of them will eventually come down um like especially at the five six seven hundred kilometer mark mm. they the atmosphere is still a little bit there and they and it drags mm-hmm. them down. But yeah, anything beyond that, there's nothing to drag them. And so they're just they're just there, like, Mm. they're there until someone wants to go and get them. And it would cost millions to send a spacecraft to go and get them. And nobody's ever going to do that. Right. So the the name of the game for that is, is creating policies that requires people who launch things into space to deorbit them at some point. Mm. But that Yeah, that's a whole other. Yeah, that's a whole other thing. Um, Yeah, yeah. On the five for dinner. So Elon Musk, I think Galileo would be incredible. Mm. That guy from what we know through history was a, a very smart guy. He, he was the, he, you know, he was the first person to discover moons. Like
0: mm.
1: nobody knew moons existed. Like right. we, we had nobody at the, t- at his time, they were still figuring out if the sun was at the center or the earth was at the center. Right. Yeah, and yeah, so yeah. nobody really realized that our moon was a moon. Not really. Mm. And so he discovered moons around Jupiter, which is like, that's a mm. like, he discovered a new category of thing. That's cool. Yeah. Um, Oh gosh. I think I'm, I, I, I don't know five for dinner, Stephen Hawking would be a really interesting person mm-hmm. um, to talk to. I would love to speak to, um, like sit down and talk with a, an, an astronaut. Like maybe Chris Hadfield would be a, a really mm-hmm. fun uh, person to talk to. Um,
0: I'm surprised, like you haven't you haven't met him or you haven't. No, I've never bad. met him. No, yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, uh, there's some really great scientists uh, throughout history. Like, uh, oh man, there's so many. I don't know. There's so many cool people uh, that'd be interested in talking to. Um, Mary Curie. Oh my gosh, Mary Curie. Wait, she's
0: on my. She's actually on my. No list. kidding. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. She's on my five. Yeah. Like.
1: Not only did they like, did she discover like elements, mm-hmm. but like she created methodology, like she created mm-hmm. nuclear fi- nuclear science in a way, mm-hmm. like that whole field of like figuring out what radiation was. Yeah, like she like that's a huge contribution to science, and she would be a really interesting person to talk to, and I'd be interested in asking questions related to how she f- like this the the impact she was making, and if she felt she was making that impact, right, and then also like. The sickness that her and her husband got from it, you know, did they, they obviously they must have known, but they did it anyway, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, nobody knew that radiation poisoning existed, but, you know, they were smart people. She was smart. I'm Mm -hmm. sure they were, you know, they're like thinking, you know, at dinner that night, like, do you think it's the science we're doing that's like making us feel this bad? Yeah. Um, They must have been thinking about it and they still did it anyway. She was like That's a really cool thing. Like you, like doing science in that's hurting you, but doing it because you're so interested in it.
0: Totally. And then the societal challenges too. Like, I mean, just her being, um, yeah, just being a woman in that field, right. At that time, like the challenges she would have had to overcome mm -hmm. and the stigmas and all this kind of stuff. And you know, those, and, and
1: you know, trailblazers like her, um, make change happen. Yeah. But we, but like the, the stigmas and the issues are still, a, a st- are still around, right? Like mm. we still have those stigma and issues to, to a certain extent. So um, I'd be interested to hear how Marie Curie would compare and, and, and see how far things have changed based on yeah. her push and what she's done. For sure. Yeah.
0: For sure. Okay. So you got Elon Musk, you got Galileo, you got Stephen Hawking. Yeah, Marie Curie, oh, and then have you had a fifth.
1: oh Chris Hadfield. Yeah, Chris Hadfield. Yeah, yeah. man, yeah, yeah. can you imagine them talking to each other? That'd be cool. I just want to watch them discuss.
0: Yeah, it's wild. For sure. Yeah, that's awesome you know that
1: that's. A, this is a really hard question. There are too many. There are too many cool people to talk to. That'd be an interesting one.
0: It's it's really interesting to see everyone's answers because what I've noticed is it kind of. It, it does seem like it speaks to the person that I'm talking to. Like yeah. it's a reflection of yeah. who that person is. And uh, I mean, with these five, I can see how they're linked to you, right? But, Stephen Hawking. Uh,
1: Un like Stephen Hawking is his, his genius. It's unbelievable how smart that guy mm. was. Uh, what he was able to contribute his, I don't know how he could have, like I've learned, tr- I've attempted to learn his science and it's like, it's a whole nother level. Like his brain mm. worked differently than everybody else's brain. Mm. Genius
0: incredible. Uh last question besides the circle of life what do you know for sure? Yeah, what do I know
1: for sure? I don't know much. Um one of the things one of the things that I was a hard lesson to learn is that I'll never know enough, right? So mm. I what do I know for sure? Almost nothing. Um especially having a kid now I know even less. <laughs> uh but I think that a good answer that I have to this is like sort of surrounds my career is that I know, I know in my heart that humans are curious. I know Mm. it, right? And you can't stop it. You can can have discussions about, you can say, oh, we should be putting money towards this or we should be putting tax dollars towards that. And that's a great conversation to have. But you're never going to stop people from wanting to be curious and discover things. And we're always going to be spending money on it uh yeah you can't stop it we want to climb the mountains we want to go to the bottom of the ocean <laughs> we want to we want to just figure out how a tree works we want to figure yeah. out what frogs do and we want to figure out what what planets do like we want to do it and yeah. and it's not anything other than it's just built in it's like the thirst for more the information yeah i know that for sure yeah
0: love that answer. I don't think I've had that answer. I've had the, I've had people say like they don't know nothing. And usually it's the academics that I'm <laughs> yeah. talking to. I've had a few say that, which makes complete sense. But uh, the thirst, that, the fact that curiosity is, is within us and that thirst, you can't stop that. It's, uh, it's a really neat answer. Um, Jesse, this is a pleasure to talking to you. I really, I really enjoy getting to know you and getting to know you as a, as a you know, new dad, fairly new dad and the challenges that you're going through to just like your curiosity that you're showing and, and just the fact that you are, um, you know, committed to this outreach and and educating people. I think that's, that's fantastic. So, um, thanks for making time today. And and hopefully I get to talk to you again in the future. Maybe, maybe if you're interested, we can do another episode at some point. There's always so much to learn. And, um, but thank you for making time for me today.
1: You're very welcome. This was a really fun conversation, Rapesh. the, I don't often get a chance to like do detailed conversations. I, mm. uh, so this is a chance. It was a really fun opportunity to sort of like go through all of the little nooks and crannies of stories and yeah, but there's still more, right? So I'd be happy to come back and do it, do, do some of the content we didn't get to.
0: That's awesome. We'll put all of, uh, Jesse's info in our show notes and you'll get a link to his bio and check his page out. And, um, thanks again, Jesse. And, um, hope to talk to you again in the future. Yeah, have a good one. All right, thanks everyone. Bye-bye.